by one of his colleagues and Pierre found out that we were going to be down there and he said, well, when we were there that he would take me and show me around. So while my husband, Ark, was doing mathy things, uh, Pierre showed up and took me in tow and took me around to some cathedrals, down to the, you know, look at the boats, you know, to see things, do things, you know, told me all the story about Marseille, etc. And we just kind of hit it off and and we've been friends more or less ever since. He would visit visit with us here, and we would see him when we went to Marseille. And then uh, the day came that he was telling me, or you know, we were exchanging emails, and he was telling me about some health issues he was having. And I think maybe you better tell the folks what started happening, Pierre, and what you did. Yeah. Uh, hello, everybody. Um, ironically, the place where I was work, working in is, uh, was dedicated to mostly science and uh, health industry, pharmaceutical industries and uh, biotech companies. And life, it was a life science research center. So I was on the supply side of the, of the chain of the market. And uh, later on, as you can uh, um, guess, I have been on the uh, demand side, on the patient side of the <coughs> pharmaceutical market. So it started in uh, um, 2008, actually, in 2008, I started to lose progressively motricity in the hand. And I went to doctors, and doctors told me, yeah, there's a Carpian Canal Syndrome, inflammation. It was the first wrong diagnosis since the paralysis started to spread further up my left arm, then uh, reaching the elbow. I met several specialists. All the time, it was the same story, you know, you wait waiting room a lot, you meet a relatively arrogant specialist, you pay quite a lot, the specialist is sure of his uh, diagnosis. The, so second wrong uh, diagnosis, uh, it was a cubital syndrome this time, it was an inflammation of the nerve, this pinch in the elbow, and I had to go for surgery immediately, like for the Carpian Canal. Uh, but the problem is that it started to spread uh, further up, so it was not the elbow, it was higher than that. So, um, third wrong diagnosis after, I'll, I'll be quick, I won't give all the details, but uh, okay. many consultations, many, a uh, lot of money spent, uh, different creams and, uh, and anti-inflammatory and painkillers. And third uh, wrong diagnosis, it was a anated disc uh, between uh, the fifth and the sixth uh, cervical vertebra. It was wrong again. And uh, all along, my health kept deteriorating. Here we are at the point of third uh, wrong diagnosis. I've lost uh, all the motricity in the left hand, in left arm, in the left leg. I'm starting to lose motricity. I've lost uh, digestion, sleep, uh, hunger, memory is starting to go away. Is starting to go away. And um, so we planned the MRI. I had to wait two months for the MRI, although my health state was. Uh, getting down the drain, you know, it was pretty serious uh, at this point already. And uh, this MRI revealed a, a, a tumor in the brain, but a minor tumor, non-cancerous. Ah, that was a fourth wrong diagnosis, as you can guess. <laughs> um, it was a meningiomis, which is a very minor and very common. So I went back home after this the MRI result and... Uh, it got very bad. I spent six days not eating, not sleeping, not drinking, and uh, 
And this night, this sixth night, uh, I could feel I was uh, I was dying. Uh, I would not be. I was not going to be able to go through the night. So I drove to the to the hospital, central hospital, emergency department, and uh, I spent about uh, two years turning around the hospital. I was not finding the entrance. I couldn't think straight anymore. I was admitted there. I got. I went for surgery, and. Uh, one point we're going to develop uh, later probably that uh, I think we should not throw the baby with the bathwater. And there are good things in the current health system. Not a lot, but there are good things. And I think surgery is one of those, uh, those things that is fairly good compared to chemotherapy, radiotherapy, and uh, pharmaceutical drugs uh, in general. Um, anyway, the surgery went well. It was long surgery, about five hours. And uh, after, during the biopsy. They discovered that it was a, a very rare tumor called um, anaplasic ependymioma, uh, the size of a mandarin, so pretty pretty big uh, uh, cancerous tumor. There are five cases in the world that are listed, so doctors have basically no clue about how this kind of tumor can spread, can develop uh, metastasis or not. It's been ranked as a grade 3 cancerous tumor by the WHO. Um, anyway, long story short, uh, I started to recover after this surgery that was performed well, that managed uh, a total exeresis, total removal of the cancerous tumor, at least the visible uh, tissues and, and cells. I recovered slowly but surely, month after month, digestion coming back, energy coming back, sleep coming back, and uh, I had a relapse, actually. I had a relapse. Uh, I got a second surgery on the 3rd of January of this year, 2013. Um, the, the second relapse, I saw it coming quite quickly because I had seizure, like during the, the first uh, tumor. So this seizure was a pretty clear sign that there was a second tumor developing in my brain. Um, I knew about it, and uh, so we went to the emergency again. Yeah, <clears throat> I told the doctor that the emergency ward about the seizure. I told about my history, and all he could say is, um, "Finally, order the scan." I said the scan won't reveal the presence of a tumor. You need an MRI plus dye. But this guy obviously didn't think it was uh, serious enough. He ordered the scan. I went for the scan the very same day. He looked at the scan. He said, "Well, it's not bleeding." So it's not an emergency, go back home. I was having seizure like uh, four or five times a day uh, uh, at this point and with a, a tumor growing in my brain and I knew that every day that passed, I was, you lose more motricity and some you don't recover. I mean, it was four, four years ago, the first tumor, and I didn't fully recover yet. And uh, we probably not recover fully, this mo lost motricity. So uh, time is really important in, uh, in such matters. Anyway, I went for surgery, a second surgery that was pretty quick and uh, very well performed by a very good surgeon. And the irony of the story, uh, another ironic point is that while I was recovering from surgery in my hospital bed, this doctor from the emergency ward 
Utonia is not bleeding, your tumor is not bleeding, so go back home, there's nothing serious. Uh, was there in the hospital and he went in my room. I say, hello, Dr. X, we're going to call him this way. Uh, do you remember me? He say, no. But I said, uh, I remember you. I'm at your emergency ward in the hospital. And uh, you say there was no problem, the tumor was not bleeding, and uh, it was not an emergency. And I got surgery in emergency, and they removed the tumor the size of a, of a grape, roughly. So he was sorry. At least he recognized he was sorry, because usually, at least in France, doctors are pretty arrogant, and they are always right, and the patient is, uh, has to listen, is ignorant, and is always wrong. At least he said he was sorry, but he quickly escaped my bedroom. He understood I didn't want him to perform any health care on me, you know, knowing the history. Uh, yeah, that pretty bad record, so I prefer to avoid uh, any care for, from him. So I try to, I've tried to be quick, and uh, basically that's, uh, that's the story. So that's the uh, <clears throat> that's the main events of what happened to Pierre. But you, you know, you have to understand there's a couple of other things that went on here because uh, during his recovery, he uh, went on what is what, what we call a paleo diet. Uh, and at a certain point later in the diet, he went, you know, totally ketogenic, uh, which means to, to keep your protein levels uh, uh, controlled and no carbs at all. And he did not receive radiation. He did not receive chemotherapy uh, after the first or the second. And the reason was that there is no evidence that... Well, he's he wants to say okay. Yeah. You tell. <clears throat> yeah, about diet. Uh, first, we can say also that for 11 years, just prior to the first tumor, I'd been a vegetarian, an integrist vegetarian, like Lierkeith describes in her book, and uh, because it made me feel special, as probably the main reason, but also because of this animal compassion thing, and I don't think it was the triggering factor for my uh, brain tumor, but I think it was definitely an aggravating factor. And uh, after the first tumor, I switched to a paleolithic um, diet and ketogenic diet. And uh, I think if I'm still here today, it's uh, one main reason is the change in diet. Because, well, let's face it, uh, this kind of tumor survival rate at um, three years is about 40%. Sixty percent die within three years, so it's really nasty. Here I'm talking about statistics for the kids because it's a it's a tumor that is rare among kids and almost inexistent among adults. Amongst adults, so we have no statistics for this kind of tumor in adults. Anyway, um, yeah, there was this uh, this change in uh, change in nutrition that was a a main factor for the recovery, and I didn't go for radiotherapy and chemotherapy, although it was strongly advised by my uh, surgeons. The surgeon said, basically, you have to go through radiotherapy, otherwise you're going to have a tumor again, and you're going to die. Um, but if you look in PubMed, if you look uh, in a scientific paper, you discover that there's not one single study about efficiency of radiotherapy, effectiveness of radiotherapy for anaplastic ependymoma, this very specific kind of tumor. Um, this kind of tumor is part of a broader family called glioma, and for the glioma, you have one scientific paper that measures the effectiveness of radiotherapy after total exeresis, total removal, removal of the tumor. And the results are 
If you go for radiotherapy after surgery, the relapse rate will drop, but it's a major part. The survival rate, survival rate that is already low, drops even more. So it means radiotherapy, yeah, there will be less relapse because, uh, because most people dead. will die. <laughs> and sure, when you're dead, uh, the brain tumor stop growing. <clears throat> so, um, and another interesting uh, anecdote is that um, with the second surgeon that operated the second tumor, he told me, yes, after the first tumor, since there is absolutely no statistical evidence, it's legitimate that the doctors advised no radiotherapy. But that's not the case at all. The doctors advised the radiotherapy after the first tumor, although they had absolutely no, no data. And it seems that um, although we think neurosurgeons, surgeons are fundamentally scientific individuals, the way they behave, the way they prescribe treatments is more based sometimes on habits, routines, beliefs that uh, hard statistical evidence, hard scientific data. So that was quite uh, puzzling well, to hear that from uh, the second I surgeon. Always, I always think about this in terms of there's a, there's a group of guys who do a radio show. <clears throat> and this is a call-in radio show where uh, you basically take your telephone and you hold it next to your car and turn it on, if it's turning on, or try to turn it on. And they will tell you everything about your car, and they will tell you what is wrong with it. And they have an, a surprising accuracy rate. These guys are really good. I mean, they're, they're older guys. They've been working on cars for years. They're mechanics, right? And a surgeon is a little bit like a mechanic, okay? When it comes to taking out bolts, unbolting a bolt, changing your oil, things like that, they are really, really good. But you know what? Mechanics, generally speaking, don't necessarily make good car engineers or good car designers. You can't say, hey, you're a mechanic. Why don't you design a new car that will be really popular? They don't, they don't necessarily know anything beyond working with their hands and screwing in some bolts and cutting you up. So, I mean, I've, I've been with a lot of doctors and I've been with a lot of surgeons, and that's kind of the conclusion that I've come to. If, if, if he wants to talk to me about exactly how he's going to cut something out, I'll listen to him, but his opinion on anything else is is just irrelevant to me because I've been told so many insane things by surgeons and doctors, period, that uh, when it comes to how does something mechanically work, it's okay, but if you ask them why something is, they they never have a good answer. They don't know. I, I agree. And um, surgeons basically are mechanics, and uh, they're not specialists in oncology in radiotherapy and chemotherapy, which are very specific fields and that are very different from neurosurgery. Another factor to take into account probably the the financial factor. I mean, when you start talking about radiotherapy and chemotherapy, you are in big pharma business. Uh, big pharma business, the field I was working in before getting sick, um, basically develop therapeutic molecules. A therapeutic molecule, it's a uh, 100 to 500 million euros to develop, to go through FDA, to reach FDA agreement, to go through the four phases of clinical trials. Uh, it means it's really for big, big players. An independent researcher, an independent discoverer who find a promising drug will not be able to go to clinical trials to fund it. He will have to go to venture capitalists and to sell his drug to big farmers. So here you enter a big financial system 
where drugs are very expensive to develop, and blockbusters, i.e. the drug that sell the most, reach between $1 billion and $6 billion net sales a year. The pharmaceutical industry is an industry that for years have displayed, have exhibited a two-figure growth rate and a two-figure profit rate. I wonder why. <laughs> and the driver, when you think about it, it's crazy that the main driver of the people who develop the drugs that are supposed to cure us, the main driver is profit maximization because at the head of those big pharmaceutical companies are speculators, are investors, people who have no a sole objective, main objective, maximization of their wealth, not the maximization of people's health. Let me just uh, interject something here. Uh, one thing that uh, Pierre hasn't mentioned yet is the fact that uh, the doctor, the initial the initial surgeon predicted that without radio or chemotherapy or both, uh, that he his cancer would return and it would go metastatic and he would be dead in a very short period of time. Well, that did not happen. Uh, what happened was he did indeed have a regrowth of the tumor, which was caught very early on, um, but he had subsequent uh, complete MRIs of you know all the related areas of the body, the spinal cord, you know all those all of those uh, uh, parts that would be connected to the brain, and there is no presence of cancer anywhere else in his body. The uh, the second surgeon, the surgeon who did the second surgery, uh, speculated that the second uh, tumor may have regrown from a filament. Uh, like a, a root-like filament that was left from the previous tumor, and it regrew in the brain. So, of course, uh, the possibility exists that if there were some uh, cancer-killing agent he could have been taking or getting from his diet, it probably wouldn't cross the blood-brain barrier. But what also is evident is that nothing spread in his body anywhere. I mean, it was just totally self-contained. Uh, we hope, of course, that this second surgery was the last because we don't want to have to do this every three or four years. I mean, if we uh, so he um, undertook a program for about two months following the surgery of taking liposomal vitamin C, which uh, in in the denatured form, what's it called again? DHA. Yeah. So he was taking this uh, daily in fairly massive doses to how much were you taking a day <clears throat> about 30 grams because the, the interest of uh, liposomal dha is that a it crosses the blood brain barrier and b um you the absorption rate is about 95% so it means you can reach very high concentration of vitamin c in your body concentration that are high enough to be toxic for cancerous cells and that's why for cancers most vitamin C treatments, or all vitamin C, are not efficient because you reach your tolerance level, bowel tolerance level, before reaching a high enough concentration to destroy cancerous cells. And another thing is, is that uh, uh, sugar, uh, glucose, competes with vitamin C on the binding sites of the cell. So, uh, in order for a vitamin C therapy to be effective, you have to be completely sugar-free, that is, in a, in a ketogenic state where your body is burning ketones and not glucose uh, in order for the most effective uh, activation of the 
uh, vitamin C treatment against cancer. Yeah, yeah. The, transpo- the transporter in the body that carries uh, glucose from one side to another one is the transporter that also carries vitamin C. So if you carry glucose, if you eat carbs, the carriers won't be available to deliver vitamin C in uh, various sites in your body. Now, what amazes me in this is that you're right now you're connecting carbohydrate sugar with a modern disease. And a lot of doctors, at least from our experience, just refuse to look into that. In fact, one, when we suggested to one doctor the vitamin C treatment, he said that it wasn't recognized. He hadn't been studied enough. But then they suggest that you do radiotherapy. Which yeah. also hasn't been studied enough. And, yeah. and the, so, about the studies, you know, it's, it's really biased because studies, preclinical in uh, animal models or in humans or clinical trials, cost millions and millions of euros. It's only big players who can fund the studies. So basically, the ones who will sell the drugs are the ones who fund the studies. So it cannot be uh, objective. Yeah, but it's amazing how doctors buy that. And the uh, one of the things we noticed, and I hope there's callers who have stories to, to tell that will be calling and telling us about their doctors, uh, one of the things is the, the level of uh, not only ignorance when it comes to diet. I think, in average, I might be wrong in the in the hours, but there's something like 12 hours in the whole career for nutritional studies, which is insane when you look at the uh, relationship. And they treat you like you're not allowed to know anything. And if you say something, they say, well, you're not a doctor. Yeah, and not only doctors. I think that in the courses that last 7 to 15 uh, years, in uh, at least in France, they have only two days of uh, course about nutrition. But in addition, what they learn during those courses is what we hear in the mainstream media is about the five fruits and five veggies and ironically, when you study cancerous cell development, the main fuel of cancer is sugar. So the, the oncologist or the neurosurgeon who knows you have a cancer will advise you to eat your five fruits full of fructose, i.e. sugar, which is the main fuel of cancer. In other words, they're telling you to feed your cancer and get your chemo, okay? So now now Jason's got uh, Jason's got a little story to tell here, and I think Chu is going to help him out. I got, I got a few. Well, no, I wanted to talk because why we started doing this show. All right, I'm going to – Mom's giving me her, her thing. You see this? All right. I mean, I was, I was talking to Laura about – I'm going to call you Laura instead of Mom. I don't feel comfortable calling you that. <laughs> I mean, let's, let's be honest. We're not going to be able to conceal the fact that she's my mother. <laughs> um, we're talking about this show because um, there was a BBC presentation, a BBC debate not too long ago with Stephen Fry that I watched um, called Is the Catholic Church a Force for Good in the World? And it was basically a debate between Steve. It was Stephen Fry and some some famous hoodoo in the, the Darwin, neo-Darwinian kind of science. What? No, it wasn't Dawkins. It was it was like his it was like his lieutenant. It was like the sub pope, um, and uh, some some Catholics, and they were basically, of course, you know, the Catholics were saying, "Hey, we do all this charity," and the scientists were saying, "Hey, you molest all these little boys." So it was kind of like it was really kind of set up. It was, it was a setup for the Catholic Church, you know, because that's what that's what science has you know reduced itself to. It's just you know parade of horrible sh- you know shock kind of debates. Um, 
because I, I started after watching this, I kind of realized that that modern medicine is very much like what the Catholic Church was back during the Enlightenment in a certain sense. Um, basically, you know, before Martin Luther came out with printing his whole Bible thing, it was this whole, you know, the priests have the books, we read the books, you can't interpret the Bible, you can't have access to it. You know, you're just a you're just a, a sheep in our flock, and you have to go to this special kind of like school, become a priest. You have to wear a special uniform. Then you're allowed to read the books in a special obscure kind of language, and then you're allowed to pronounce stuff on religion as long as you do the, you know the sort of doctrinal thing. And then you know the scientists came along, the natural the natural philosophers at the time. And they said, hey, this is this is real BS. And Martin Luther was like, no, everyone should be able to read it. And that kind of led to the scientific revolution in a certain sense. And now we have the exact same situation today that we had then with the inverse, which is basically that in order to be able to talk about anything scientific, you have to wear a special uniform, a white coat with a little thing and the thing around your neck. You have to go to a special school for many, many years. You have a special title. You're not called father. You're called doctor and all, and all these different things. And so basically science has replaced religion and, and takes over the exact same job. And the jargon, the, the, jargon. the jargon, if you don't have the jargon, the specific words, you're unable to read, to communicate, to learn right. about the specific field. Right, and there's there's reasons for it, you know, just like there was reasons why they read, wrote everything in Latin. Um, when you read stuff about what was going on with them collecting up the documents and coming up with the scriptures, there was a reason why they chose Latin and they unified everything at that time. Uh, were, were for very reasonable reasons. It wasn't to obscure things. And still today, today you have a lot of in ana anatomy you words in anatomy, words for disease that are in Latin. Yeah. Well, you know. some of them sound like they want to save you, not not help yeah, you. You yeah, know. Yeah. I was gonna get that sort of thing where doctors today they don't want to help you. If they wanted seriously, because I've I've been in pain and I've been at hospitals and I've been seriously like I need some help. They don't want to help you. They want to save you. And um, there was there was one time uh, I went to the hospital and um, well I mean this is, okay so 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 quite a long time ago um, I'm gonna tell the the one about the colon thing I had I had a colon problem for for actually a couple of years like every six months I would have like some very strong intestinal pain you know and I would just stop eating anything for for several days and then it would go away you know. And each time it would come back, it would get worse. So um, I went to Los Angeles, and I worked for this game company. And I, of course, ate a bad diet. And, of course, you know, I had there with all the great food in Los Angeles and, you know, didn't do so well. I came back, and right after coming back, uh, I got sick again with this, this thing that I'd always had, but the, it didn't go away. It started getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And so I was... Um, About what age did this start? What what age did the colon thing? The colon problems, yeah. Um, I don't know. It's probably maybe like that that particular problem, the colon problems themselves. I was about seven or eight. I don't know. That was that's when the colon problems started. Now keep in mind, I was feeding this child what was considered to be an absolutely healthy diet. He had multiple vegetables. He had whole grain breads. Uh, basketball. You know, and that was the funny thing was because from the time he was an infant, you know, if I've tried to feed him vegetables, he would turn his face, he would cry, he'd hold his hands up, and he'd say, no basketballs, no basketballs. Because I, I can vegetables. That's what he called vegetables because he couldn't say the word vegetables, so he called them basketballs. <laughs> and 
essentially I was getting him to eat his vegetables and his whole grains, you know, and his cheese and drink his milk and all the things that I had been told were the things that a good mother fed their child. I felt pretty righteous because I didn't feed my children fast food. They weren't allowed to have Cokes or uh, soft drinks or excessive candies or anything like that. If they had a dessert, it was something that I baked at home. Um, I made our own bread. I would sometimes make, you know, 25 loaves at a time, put them in the freezer so that I knew absolutely everything that was in that bread. It was perfect. It was healthy. It was, you know, whole grains. It had molasses. It had, you know, wheat germ. It had oatmeal, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, really great bread. I made really fabulous it bread. It was pretty good, actually. And, and, you know, so we had all this great bread. We had, bread. Yeah, and we had, we had cornbread. We had collard greens. We had lots of fresh tomatoes, green beans. I mean, the whole nine yards. But he hated his basketballs. So, okay, carry on. But he had this problem going on. And he wasn't really talking about it to me, his mother, because... You know, I, I think there must be something embarrassing about having a colon problem, and you don't want to talk about it. So he was having these problems, and he wasn't talking about it. And every once in a while, he would say, you know, you know, my stomach really hurts. But he wasn't making it clear because he thought, I guess he thought it was normal. Carry on. <laughs> well, I mean, I had it for so long. Anyway, so, I mean, it didn't really get really bad until I was maybe 24, 25, maybe. That's when it started to really kind of... Yeah, I mean, we we moved to France, and that kind of added a lot of stress and stuff like that. So I so I suppose that kind of made things worse. Anyway, so so I got back and 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 I had the problem again, and it didn't go away like it normally did, and it kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And so um, I went to to the local little hospital, the and uh, went there, and um, he said uh, you have you know this kind of infection. And you're gonna to have to take some antibiotics. And uh, I said, and he said you're gonna to have to stay in the hospital. And I said I didn't want to stay in the hospital, you know, because who wants to stay in the hospital? I said, can you can you just give me some antibiotics and, and I'll go home and take them. So I went home and I took them. And the antibiotics were were oral antibiotics, and they uh, they made the problem worse, <laughs> so much worse that I, I was. I, my mom can tell you I have actually given a deathbed confession. Yeah, he made his dead he made his deathbed confession. He's apologized for everything. He was in so much pain, and I really seriously thought he was going to die. I mean, it was, I it was, I was so bad. And and after they had done these scans, these X-rays, all of these things, and they said that his whole intestines and all of the tissues around was all infected. It was just such a horrible condition. Uh, you know, there were there were mumblings about removing his colon at the age of you know what twenty five or something, and and it just, you know, I was just in a shocked state. So, I, And I also knew that, you know, if you have an infection in your colon and something goes wrong, it can perforate, it can spill into your peritoneal right. cavity, you can get so peritonitis, and you can die. You know, so I, you know, so when he was making his deathbed confession, you know, I was taking it seriously. Okay, we're going to take you to the hospital, you know. So, so, so we go back to the hospital. So we go back to this hospital, and this is, this is, this is like the next day and a half. You know, because I took the oral antibiotics and they just totally ripped me, ripped me up. And I go back to the hospital, and the lady. We finally get in after all this effort to get in. We get in because it's really late at night. Actually, it was like ten thirty, eleven o'clock at night. We we go back to the hospital and we get into the bed. And it was Christmas Day. Yeah, yeah this is Christmas Day actually. You know, Christmas Day was the next day. This is Christmas Eve. Christmas Eve night. So she calls the doctor, and the doctor, the doctor that I was seeing, um, I'm not going to say his name anyway. He wasn't there, but this other doctor 
and I will say his name because I hate this guy. And I you better not. No, no, wait. <laughs> I can't say his name. This is France. We can't say his name. I can't say his name. Anyway, so there had been a little bit of a history with this other doctor who was evil, and he was the only one who was available, so she called him. So he came and basically blamed me and said, well, we told you so. And, you know, and then I was like, can you give me something for the pain? And you got to understand, I mean, intestinal pain is is really kind of bad, you know? I mean, it's not a fun kind of pain to have. And I had very severe intestinal pain at this point. And, and so he said, no, no, I can't give you, I'll just give you some a paracetamol. <laughs> and it was kind of like at that point, well, actually, it wasn't at that point because I, I was very incoherent at this point, actually. I was like, you know, doing anything to escape the pain. Um but finally, it, it calmed down after a while. Um, I, I got some intravenous antibiotics. But it was after that point that I realized that, that he didn't want to help people. Like, if he had wanted to help people, he would have helped me in a kind of sense. I, here I am in pain. He, he, he kind of actually wanted he, – he thought I deserved it. It was like I had sinned. It was kind of like the same philosophy that a Christian has. When he sees someone suffering from their sins – and they say, well, you shouldn't have sinned. You know? And a Christian doesn't want to help you. He wants to save you, right? He wants to save you. There's a very different idea here than helping people. And that's what doctors are like. Doctors want to save you. They don't want to help you. Yeah, and I think you're onto something when you compare the behavior of doctors and the behavior of Christians who believe that pain is somehow part of the expiation process mm. as if a disease is something that you deserve you receive maybe from some god and uh, that the suffering this pain you deserve it and you have to go through it a kind of purgatory and in france at least until <coughs> the beginning of the 80s for dental treatment there was no anesthetics use i remember when i was a kid about uh, seven years old i had a chronic otitis you know mm. And it was too bad, so I had to go to a doctor who, who pierced my eardrums. I didn't use any anesthetics. So basically, he put a, a needle in my eardrum, and he pierced the left one, and he, he pierced the, the right one. And that's very painful, actually. And, and France, a Catholic country, eh, the granddaughter of, uh, of Rome, uh, fundamentally Catholic, has been notorious for lagging behind other countries as far as pain treatment is concerned. Mm. And also on a political level, on a hierarchical level, keeping the patient in a pain state, making him more dependent on the health system. Mm. When you have no more pain, you don't need a doctor so much. Right. You might think about, you might discuss his opinion, you might uh, mm. go to another doctor because this one is really too expensive and mm. too incompetent. When you're in pain, you're desperate, you accept anything. Mm-hmm. You're vulnerable. Yep. I'm vulnerable. So yeah, I mean my experience with doctors because I've I've um met and talked with a lot of them, I've been operated on more times than I actually can count. Five. Five times? Are you are you considering the first one there? Mm-hmm. And then that one? Oh six. Yeah, six. There you go. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> six times. Uh, six general anesthesias. Uh, I've actually had eight general anesthesias. Um, and uh, I've seen lots of different doctors, mostly gastroenterologists. And uh, my opinion is is that, you know, 
you, you talk to them and you find out what they got to cut out, you know. But um, they'll give you. I mean, okay, I'll give you a great example of this. I went to a specialist, and I love this specialist, and I, I don't want to say anything bad about him because he really is a truly great guy. He's he's probably one of the best doctors I've ever met, and I was very lucky to find him. But I but I go to this guy and um, sit down, and he he gives me the speech because it turns out that I have a disease called Vernoy. Uh, which is a genetic disorder, which is kind of incurable. And basically, whenever I have this problem, I just have to go get surgeries. I didn't know this at the time, but I sit down and he gives me the speech. And the speech is, there's no cure. That's the first thing. There's no cure. You're going to have to learn to accept this and realize that whenever you have this problem, you're just going to have to get it operated on. And you have to come to terms with that. And a lot of people have problems, but there's no cure. So I said, okay. He said, but there's a couple of things that you can do to um to ameliorate the problem. The first one he says is um we don't know, but we've seen that there might be a connection between being overweight and having the problem. And I said, okay, cool. I lost sixty kilos and then I had the problem. So obviously losing the weight. He said, okay, okay, I'm just telling you. And he said and, and the next thing is is maybe if you stop smoking it will help. And I said, well hold on a second. How exactly is smoking connected to it? He says, well We've noticed that 80% of people who have your disease are smokers. Well, I said, okay, well, you know, I said, and, and if they quit, maybe it could help. We don't know. We just notice that there's a high number. And the next thing he says is, you have to maintain your stress. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, one thing we do know about the disease is that people who, when you get really stressed out, it causes a hormone imbalance, which causes the disease to activate. And I said, okay, and so... Can you connect point three to point two? What do you mean? Well, if people are susceptible to stress and they get stressed out a lot, they might be more likely to smoke because smoking helps you with stress. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like he could make the connection with this idea that, that he, he didn't he didn't realize it was correlational, right? It was the fact that they smoked was actually a symptom of the fact that they had this stressful problem. And smoking helped them to manage their stress. You know, people who have stress management strategies, one of them being smoking. And then if you, if I stop smoking, I'm losing a stress management strategy. So that should make it worse. Tell tell about the vegetable. Yeah, well, the the thing, uh, during one of those surgeries or after between the colon thing, um, we met another doctor and he said, we're going to do a colonoscopy. We have to. Okay, so how do we prepare for it? Well, you have to eat a non-residue diet. And we're like, well, what is a non-residue well, diet? Wait a minute. One of the things he says, we have to calm things down. Yeah. Why do you have to do this diet to calm things down? Okay, so what does it consist of? Um, just some, you know, mashed potatoes and nothing with fiber and dairy, which Jason can't have. We know we've discovered through diet that dairy and gluten are a no-no for his colon and for many people, as we discovered. But anyway, when you went through the list, the only thing that was left was fat and meat. And Laura and I looked at each other and we were like, wait a minute, is that what's healthy for for the colon? Aren't we supposed to have fiber all the time? Yeah, the thing was, was he was saying, you have to get the colon calmed down and you have to get it clean so we can do a colonoscopy. How do you do that? And basically, it amounted to eating meat and fat and no vegetables and no fruits. In other words, this was a gastroenterologist who was going to go and look inside somebody's colon, and he wanted it to be clean and not messy. 
And he was telling us the way to get it clean and not messy is to not eat any vegetables. They don't like to do colonoscopies on people who have been eating vegetables because it's messy. It's full of nasty stuff. But they're so brainwashed that even that doctor, when we ask him, well, is that a good diet for him? It might be. He's like, oh, no, no, you can't go too long without your fiber. You have to. And yet he was just saying to me, what irritates the colon is fiber. That's what keeps it irritated and agitated. And, I mean, I just sat there and I thought, you know, this guy cannot make the connection between what he's saying to me and the fact that we're that he's addressing a patient who has, you know, what can only be described as an IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, and, and, a, and a real problem with an irritable colon and, you know, one that definitely does not need to be irritated or agitated in any way. And he's saying, oh, no, you know, you got to have your vegetables, even though that is the thing that is the irritant. Well, I hate the term IBS. I hate there's two terms that I think should be just erased and they're they're unfair. IBS uh, kind of sounds like maybe you're just not happy about the food you're eating. <laughs> Something like that. And leaky gut, you know, I mean, it just sounds like a leaky drain pipe. I mean, people don't really understand the pain, the embarrassment, the discomfort, and the the the. Re- it's really bad, you know, because when you have IBS, you start measuring distances in public restrooms. You know, how many public restrooms are going to be on the way to this particular location, and will there be a bathroom at this location in case I have an attack? And and you become you become kind of agoraphobic. You know, you don't want to go outside. It's not that you're terrified of going outside. It's that you're terrified of being somewhere where you don't have access to to proper bathroom facilities, and so it's it's really it's like, I, IBS is 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 a mental disorder and it's a physical disorder all at the same time. It's basically like having having a phobia that isn't actually really a phobia because it's not unreasonable for you to be afraid of the situations that you've experienced before. And, I, and I've had some horrible situations. And no problems. doctor, we met about four specialists, no doctor had showed any empathy whatsoever for it. <coughs> All they could suggest was kind of like for Pierre, you know, well, uh, we're going to do something, you know, super duper technology. We're going to uh, sew your um, your stomach, you're, we're going to divide it into three chambers. Oh, Basically, yeah. they're turning to they're turning you into a cow, so that you eat less. Because your problem is that you eat too much, probably. And we know he doesn't eat too much. The thing is, the thing is, the thing that strikes me so much is that there is there are actually. Would you just say what you're trying to do? Will you choke up on that microphone so I can hear you better? Okay, I'm getting closer to the microphone. <laughs> yeah, we're so professional here. <laughs> Anyway, there are scientific studies that basically have shown that the calorie in, fat in, fat on your hips is completely and totally fallacious. That how much you eat has nothing to do with how fat you are. That people who don't eat very much get very fat, and people who eat lots and lots and lots don't get fat. We all have anecdotal evidence of this, right? Every person in the world right now has anecdotal evidence of this. Everybody knows a super skinny person who eats constantly, who has McDonald's every day, who eats fattening huge quantities of food and never gains any weight. And most of the fat people out there have tried diets where they restrict how much they eat and realize that it doesn't help anything, right? There's anecdotal evidence. There turns out there are scientific there's scientific evidence against it. There is actually no scientific evidence for it, right? Okay. 
and doctors they don't know about it and it's and it's gotten to the point now where i as a lay person know about it then i have to consider them not knowing about it as willful ignorance oh let me tell the one about the protein that's, oh, yeah. that's the yeah, that's beautiful that's the example of their ignorance i mean you can't get worse than that Went to another specialist. This is a gastroenterologist <laughs> specialist, right? Specialist. What does he specialize in? Digestion. Okay. Yeah, digestion. So Jason tells him, well, you know, for one year uh, I've been doing this paleo diet, and I barely only eat meat and and fat, and it has really, really helped me. I'm not coming to see you. Uh, that this was at the point where we we're still trying to find a diagnosis for um, hydrogenitis suppurativa or Vernet. He wasn't going there for the colon. And so he was telling the story, you know, he was happy about it, and he told the doctor, I only eat meat, and it cured all my IB, uh, sorry, IBS yeah. something uh, problems. And the doctor stops him right there and he says, well, what do you mean, you only eat meat? Well, yeah, meat and fat. Well, you can't do that. You're going to lack protein. <laughs> this is a specialist in digestion, people. Just, just to be just to be fair, he said you're going to lack protein in French, so it wasn't like he misunderstood the English version <laughs> of the word. It wasn't like that. He was speaking in French at the time, so he, he doesn't get off on the whole, I didn't know the word in English. Uh, Marceau has asked a question, which is, is there a difference between IBS and leaky gut syndrome, or, okay, or on, are they okay. interchangeable? All right, so when you're talking about IBS, leaky gut, basically everybody has their own opinion of them. Everybody... They're, they're different. It's like IBS is kind of like the same concept of AIDS in a certain sense. Um, AIDS basically is not really a disease, right? It's a it's a spectrum of disorders that you can have, right? So when you get when you have AIDS, when you die of AIDS, it basically means that you died of some disease which they can't really account for, right? You basically if you had like you died of a colon cancer, you died of this, you died of you know some other type of, of pneumonia. pneumonia. People who die of AIDS actually die of other things, but they kind of lump them all together into that category uh, based on a couple of rules like whether or not you have a marker for another disease called HIV, which is uh, a passenger retrovirus type of thing. If you have the marker for the white cells, yeah, then you and, and then you die like of some disease like pneumonia or there's a couple of different colon cancers that you get and things like that, then they say that you have AIDS, right? That's kind of how that works. IBS is kind of in a certain sense the same thing. You have a bunch of different problems and nobody's really sure what it is. You could have inflamed guts and you could have chronic diarrhea or you could have, you know, sort of like chronic constipation, which is kind of funny that the same disease can be either constipated or diuretic. So basically, when you have all of these different problems and they don't know what the cause is, well, actually, they should know what the cause is, but they don't. Then the they vegetables. Call it, and then they call it IBS. And it's basically when your intestines aren't functioning like somebody else's, like the normal, like the golden mean, which is basically food comes in and then food comes out at a regular interval and you don't have any problems holding it and you don't have any, uh, it's not too liquidy or too hard or too painful or any of these things. And when that's not the case and they don't know why, then they call it IBS. And leaky gut is usually something that occurs in the small intestine, yes. not the large intestine. It's when there are, there are uh, the damaged areas in the walls of the intestine and partially or not completely digested food can pass directly into the bloodstream through the walls of the intestine. And it usually comes from damage 
to the uh, to the cells lining the intestine, and that damage is usually caused by uh, gluten and casein, which are proteins of uh, grains and dairy, respectively. GMOs. And, and you'd think that something called gluten, i.e., glue, would not cause the walls to open up. <laughs> yeah, but it's really kind of it does. Kinda... And the problem of uh, what happens with that is that when the stuff escapes from your colon in the wrong in the wrong in the wrong form, like when the food hasn't been properly digested and small intestine, in the small intestine, uh, when it leaks through the sides of the walls, um, your body's autoimmune system notices that it's a foreign body. It's not. It hasn't been broken down properly into a consumable form, right? It sees it as the foreign body, and then it starts to attack it. So it causes an, an immune reaction, but it causes a secondary immune reaction, which, which is why you don't have an immediate response, which is why it's so difficult for you to realize that when you're eating wheat, it's causing the problem because you eat the wheat, and of course it's opioids, so you feel immediately good. In fact, you feel good probably for about 24 hours afterward of eating some wheat. And then you start feeling like crap, right? Then and your autoimmune reaction starts kicking in. But that's at the point when it starts leaking through the gut and your autoimmune reaction kicks in and then you start swelling up and you get the inflammation. And you eat some more bread to get some more opioids so you can feel better. But meanwhile, that autoimmune reaction has kicked in in such a way that it starts attacking your own tissues. You can have your joints attacked. You can get arthritis. You can get lupus. You can get you know things like multiple sclerosis. You can get... Uh, uh, heart disease. Even mental problems. You can have mental problems. Yeah, schizophrenia yeah. is linked to uh, gluten intolerance, and you, you can be gluten intolerant without having celiac disease. In fact, most people on the planet are probably gluten intolerant or gluten sensitive. So well, the it, problem is celiac is like the extreme. That's when you start actually having physical damage to the the villi in the gut. You know the that's irreparable. It's irreparable. It's like that's another mm. one of those things we we took. We, we went to the doctor. Can I tell this one about the liver? Yeah. Oh yeah. So 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 so, so we went to the doctor with R. E. L. Remember that? No. No name. Little oh, sister. little sister. Sorry. <laughs> went to the doctor with little sister. Can't can't use names. Anyway, so we go to the doctor and um, she's um sitting there talking to him, and she, she wants to get a test. We, we've been trying to find out what's wrong with her. The doctor doesn't know what's wrong with her. She's having, she hasn't been feeling so well. So um, we ask, we, 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 of course, do our own research, and we ask, you know, well, can, can she have this test? Maybe this test would help. And, of course, the doctor takes great offense to, to having a, any kind of suggestion. He says, no, 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 we can't do that um, because she doesn't have organ damage, so we can't do the test. Well, it's exactly the same thing that happened to Pierre. In fact, before before we managed to get the MRI, we had to call five hospitals, and he had to drive five hours to get to uh, have his MRI done because the scan wasn't showing any bleeding. Now, they wait till your organs are destroyed or your brain is bleeding to do something about it. Right. I want to ask this guy, do you only diagnose in, in, in the dissecting room? Yeah, exactly. Do you only diagnose when you do the autopsy? Jesus Christ, guy. I mean, the thing is, is like, I mean, with me, whenever I went to the, the hospital, you know, or the doctor or something like that, they always kind of treated me like there was something, you know, wrong with the way I was living that was causing these problems. And then finally, after years, I go to a doctor and he explains to me, no, as it turns out, it's just you lost the genetic lottery when it comes to this. And actually, you didn't lose the genetic lottery. Basically, like my health problem, which is very terrible, comes basically from having kind of like an old leftover gene 
that would work really, really well if I lived in a wet, cold environment and I would have no problems whatsoever, but because I don't live in a wet, cold environment and I'm not swimming around all the time, um, I my skin produces a little bit too much oil and a little bit too much keratin, and then you know I have this problem. So I mean, it's it's like it's it's irritating because they treat you like there's something wrong. Not not so much that there's something wrong with you, it's that you're doing wrong things. You're not doing the right thing. Tell you're sinning. The woman in the milk. Oh Jesus Christ. Oh well, then that was another one. They after four surgeries within one year. Uh, you had Jason had a blood test, and I think you ha- you were low on vitamin right, D no, no, or this something. Is, this is a great thing. Okay, so hold on a second. Okay, <laughs> so um, I had to travel all the way to like Lyon. I had to travel all the way to Lyon to to have the surgery. So I had I had I, I'm gonna should I give a little bit of details so people understand like what was going on? Yeah. Okay. So I had this whole intestinal problem, and uh, I cured the intestinal problem, which was great, but because it had weakened the walls of my colon, I ended up with a fistula, which is terrible. And then I was in Austria and developed this fistula. It was horrible. I ended up at a hospital in Austria, which is a whole other story. It's just absolutely fantastic. I come home, and I'm looking for some 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 help with this problem. I go to this, this French doctor um, at this clinic who is uh, the, the, uh, the place where the mean doctor was. And uh, I didn't want to see the mean doctor, so I saw his partner. <laughs> and uh, his partner was such a retard that I uh, I told him I was going to get a second opinion, and he got mad at me and basically banned me from the clinic, <laughs> basically saying, well, you want a second opinion? You don't appreciate me. Blah, blah, blah. So we find this um, <coughs> we find this specialist, go to the specialist. I get the diagnosis for Vinoy because he, he was actually kind of a clever guy, even though he didn't know about the whole protein issue. And he fixes the fistula problem. So I had that surgery. But when he goes down to fix the fistula problem, he notices that I have Vinoy, right? And uh, he's a surgeon, and surgeons kind of like, they can't not cut on you if there's a reason. Like, they're just obsessed with, like, excising tissues. So he wasn't satisfied with just putting an acet on for my fistula. He decided to cut out around my anus, basically. So I had a big, giant, gaping wound right under my anus, which was very, very stressful. Um, And uh, so I came back. I, I, I come out of the surgery, and he says, oh, and by the way, I cut out a little bit of of this this problem that you have <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> he he said, "Oh no, it's it's not any bigger than my thumb." <laughs> and and I'm on so many painkillers and you know, nothing's wrong and go home. <laughs> Take off the bandage. I mean, it's like a, it's like a small little teacup's worth of 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 uh, the size of a small teacup right under my under my booty. <laughs> I was like, "Oh Jesus Christ." So um so that heals up, right? And then I go back to him. <laughs> I go back to him to get the sets on taken out. <laughs> and the bastard cuts it open again. He says it healed too quickly. <laughs> I said, what do you mean it healed too quickly? When is that a criteria? Oh my god. So 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 this is like I had like these these four these three these three surgeries there. Get it put in, get the thing cut out. You know, then I had to have a, another surgery to get it replaced, and then another surgery to get it cut out, and then I had to go up to the specialist in Lyon. Go up to the specialist in Lyon. I get um, eight wounds. I get eight wounds. The largest one is nine centimeters long by four centimeters in the deepest place. Right, all in my junk, basically. I mean, this is all junk wounds. This is totally like the worst possible place you could ever have. <laughs> you could ever have these holes this big, and so. I, I come down from having these, this is my fourth surgery. I have like holes in my body, nine centimeters, 
by four centimeters deep, I go to a hyperbaric chamber because obviously this is a problem where you don't want to be healing for a long time. I go to the doctor in the hyperbaric chamber, and the hyperbaric chamber says, well, I control everything because she's also doing experiments, so you're going to have to see our nutritionist. (laughs) 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 And I'm just like, (laughs) okay. So so the nutritionist wants me to have a blood sample. So after all these surgeries, all this stress, all these prescription medications, everything, this whole time I'm eating like just the paleo diet, she gets the partial test results back, and I was, and I was completely normal on everything. I was perfect on everything except one thing. What was it? Vitamin B, I think. Vitamin B? Yeah. I was a little bit low on vitamin B, right? And the nutritionist like totally freaks out because she predicts that I'm going to be low on everything else, right? They only got partial results back. So they only got this vitamin B and a couple other things, and she's like, oh, my God. You're going to die. You have to take special health stuff, right? It was like a baby formula, milk with, um, you know, extra vitamins and stuff. Yeah, it was milk and vitamins, basically. (laughs) Milk and vitamins. And we tried explaining to her that I don't drink milk, right, that I'm lactose intolerant. But the doctor refused to accept my word for it. She said, well, you're going to have to get tested for it. And when you did get tested, the only thing they could say is, well, you're not celiac. You're making it up. Yeah, they said I'm not celiac. And I said, well, that doesn't mean that I'm not sensitive. <laughs> and that can happen to you people. I mean, you go there and you know you have some symptoms, but because you're not celiac, they don't test you properly. And then you, you know, you're left basically, you know, they they look at you like you're mad or you're some kind of orthorexic. Now yeah. the, new, the new term for people obsessed with healthy eating, you know, and that's, and you're you're actually left with either agreeing and not doing what they say. Or just, you know, leaving. and That's what we had to do, basically, because she wouldn't leave it alone, right? There was, she cornered me one day after I had just gotten out of my hyperbaric session. Early on, I get out of my hyperbaric session, I'm sitting there, and after you get out of – because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hyper-oxygenation, too. So basically, you, you are kind of high after all of this oxygen. So you've been stuck in this tank for like two hours, being injected full of oxygen, so you're really kind of like not in the right state of mind. And she corners me, and she starts asking me about what I eat, Right. And so I, I, I tried – I had to lie, you know, because I couldn't say I eat pork chops. What else do you eat? I mean, people always ask me what else, and I pork chops, <laughs> you know. Now I eat a little bit more variety, but at the time when this was going on, I was just eating the pork chops. And so, you know, and then she kept asking me, and she said, well, what about cheese? And I said, no, I don't, I, I, I don't eat cheese, really. I, I don't like milk products. And she's like, yeah, well, what about brie? And I said, well, that's a cheese. <laughs> and she was like, well – do you, do you like provolone? And I said, these are still cheeses. <laughs> and she was like, well, Roquefort? <laughs> I said, no, I don't eat cheese. Opal tea. Perhaps. <laughs> she looked exactly like Frau Farbissina from that movie. She did. She like, was like a midget version. And this is this woman, basically, she looked like Willow Wafka. <laughs> I mean, she was like she was like three feet tall, I swear to Christ. Really, really thin with this turkey neck situation going on. She had like the really pronounced turkey neck and she was like hyper, hyper thin. And I was like, you're going to, you're going to advise me on health. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, the woman weighed 90 pounds, you know, she looked like a cancer survivor. <laughs> Pierre doesn't, Pierre look, doesn't look like that. Pierre doesn't look like that. Uh, uh, just going back to the, 
Uh, I notice as well that the doctors often bring you for this guilt trip, you know, yeah. which is a way to control you. To yeah. you feel guilty, and then you must more submissive to their to their power. And one of the main culprits, um, they're reasoning basically that uh, if you're sick, it's because you're doing something wrong, which might be partly true. But usually the solution they give to the problem is uh, counterproductive. Is follow the five foods, five veggies, uh, no smoking dogma. Radiotherapy. Yeah, and I, I'm going there, yeah. step by step. Um, so yeah, one of the main culprits is smoking. Smoking is really bad. And in mainstream media, and all doctors will tell you, yeah, there's a strong correlation between smoking and cancer, in particular lung cancer. And there is an anecdote, I mean, it's not an anecdote, it's a result of some uh, scientific uh, studies. In the 50s, before this war against smokers, in the 1950s, there was this group of researchers who was conducting research about cancer, smoking, and radiations. And they were working on mice, basically. They had a population, a group of mice, that was exposed to radiation, ionizing radiation, and another group of mice that was exposed to smoking. By the way, they never managed to have a higher rate of cancer in mice exposed to smoking compared to the mice exposed to nothing. However, when exposed mice to ionizing rays, radiation, the cancer rate was going through the roof, of course. That's one of the main causes of cancer. And that's why radiotherapy, gamma rays, which is the most dangerous type of radiation, is difficult to understand. Basically, radiotherapy, gamma rays, which induce cancer, is supposed to cure your cancer. I didn't understand yet how, the, how it works, if it uh, ever works. Anyway, one day, one of the researchers made a mistake. And instead of testing normal mice, exposing them to radiation, he exposed mice that are, were exposed to smoking, to smoke, and then exposed them to radiation. And what he noticed is that the cancer rate in smokers, in smoking mice, was lower than in normal mice. <laughs> because, and that's Smoking a, protects you from radiation. Because smoking stimulates secretion of mucus that acts as a kind of protective layer right. against radiation, particularly in the lungs, particles that might be right. inhaled. The protective smoker's cough. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you know. The, and uh, protection to any kind of detrimental uh, dust, any kind of detrimental thing you can find in what you breathe. Well, yeah, you know, you watch uh, Hunt for Red October, and when there's a radiation leak, they all pull out the radiation cigarettes, you know. <laughs> well, it seems to me we're describing two problems here. Apart from the whole religious tone to medicine, um, one of them is the lack of holistic approach they have. I mean, everybody, you go to a doctor and they say, sorry, this is not my domain. I only studied the gut. By the way, you have, you're going to like protein if you eat too much meat. Don't ask me how much they studied that. But none of them, or at least, you know, from our experience, have um, the whole the holistic approach. They don't know how the body really functions, and, and a layperson can know more about it sometimes. So that's one of the problems, you know, the, the whole um, education system concerning medicine and how they're really, really put into little boxes. And if you have a heart problem, you go to one. If you have a, if your toe is hurting, you can go to another one. But never, ever ask for any advice that doesn't concern the specialty. Mm. 
and that's dangerous because a lot of the things a lot of things are connected. And the other thing seems to me the problem of authoritarian followers. I mean, they seem to be really high in the medical profession. Yeah. Authoritarian followers. I don't know if we have defined them yet in any show. Yes, we yeah. do. We have. Yeah. yeah. Um. So um. And I mean, you have the. Can you tell the story about the nurses from Cialdini? Because nurses are really. Oh, I mean, yeah. in general. I mean, Cialdini. There was a nurse study actually done done a while ago, and basically what uh, these these sociologists did is they um they they picked a hospital and they had prearranged everything so that there was no danger because what they did was very dangerous. Uh, basically, what they did is they would call up the nurse at the nurse's station and they would identify themselves as Doctor So and So. And they would know the name of a particular patient, know what room they were in, and say, "I want to go. I want you to go, and I want you to give this dose of this medication to that patient immediately." And the dose of the medication they gave was obviously fatal. That no, it was they, they picked the medication. I can't remember the name of it. Don't don't ask me for the name of it. They picked the medication that the nurse had to know absolutely that it was a completely grotesquely fatal dose. And I think it was something like 80 to 90% of the nurses had to be stopped by the researchers before administering the dose because they were really going to go through with it. We have a caller. We have a caller. Hello? 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 You have to unmute me. I have the feeling you can probably hear me. I can't hear you. BTR has technical difficulties. You have to unmute me. Can you hear me? Uh, I'm going to call back to see if this uh, this can be remedied. Um, he didn't have you muted. He didn't have him muted. Let's see if he calls back. I got a story to tell, but I don't want to get started on it. If we got a caller calling in here. Well, well the funniest one, the funniest one about the funny, actually, fun, not for the people who who were going to have it, but about the nurses, they went to uh, twenty different. Uh, a guy pretended to be a doctor on the phone, and they and um, yeah, then he showed up, yeah. and he wrote in the prescription. It was a a year uh, antibiotic, yeah. and he wrote in the prescription, apply on R capital R, dot year. Yeah. Right ear, he meant. Yeah. They misread the prescription. Now read R E A R all together. <laughs> and they were putting it on the rear. Yep. That's how much they don't think when they get orders. Okay, we have a caller back here. We're going to take this now and see if it's any better. No, we still have the same problem. Okay, take care. Hang on a second. That's weird. I hope this. Hello. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, I'm Robert from New York. Hi, Robert. What hey, Robert. What's going, going on? on? Hey. Uh, yeah, I noticed these doctors. They um, they're very subjective. Uh, I go for a physical every year because I have a commercial driver's license. And the first year I went, you know, I had borderline blood pressure, and I told him I smoked, and he said, "Oh yeah, you're in bad health. You're in bad health." Next year. Uh, I had a different doctor, same readings, told him I don't smoke. And he said, oh, yeah, you're in really good health. Your cholesterol is great and blah, blah, blah. Nothing oh. changed just, just by saying I smoked. Exactly. I've done an experiment with this, right, because I've seen, like, you know, 10 different doctors, and I've gone for several surgeries, right? Okay, 
So I've tested it, right? I, I basically don't tell doctors that I smoke anymore, right? Because when you tell them that you smoke, they act differently to you and they have different restrictions on you like pre-surge, pre-surgery, right? And um, yeah. they act like, you know, you can't smoke or anything like that. And if you don't, if you tell them, no, 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 I don't smoke, then you're totally fine. But if you tell them that you smoke, they suddenly find all kinds of things wrong with you and have like different recommendations. So it's absolutely hilarious. I have a good one. I have a good one on that. I had surgery in 2008 and, and in part of the pre-surgery preparations and checkups so you know i got sent around to different doctors who were checking all my systems you know because when you get to be an old lady you know they don't want you to die on the operating so they want to check everything out so i go to the i go to the pneumologist i guess uh the one that checks your lungs to make sure that you're going to be able to breathe during the surgery so she asked me if i smoked and i said oh maybe one or two a day and so she uh she she noted that down and and that was a, a really low number. So she didn't figure I was really a smoker. She said you're not really a smoker. I says uh, one or two a day. So I get the lung test, you know, and and I have to breathe into things and check out, you know how powerful my in breath is and my out breath and listen to my lungs and all this kind of stuff. And she says you got the lungs of a baby. <laughs> I mean I swear that's what she said. I was bothered to explain to her that when I said one or two a day, I meant one or two packs. <laughs> Oh, yeah, we have, we have the breathing test for, for the respirator, and uh, I asked him, the first time I did it, I got like 105%, whatever, than normal, and then uh, he's like, well, you smoke, you're going to lose it, so anyway, the next year, I had a different guy, and it came up uh, the same thing, 105, maybe actually more, 107, because the EE, the EE breathing, and he's like, "Wow, your uh, your numbers from last year you improved." And I and then afterwards, I wanted to say I smoked, but I I just kind of like shut up. <laughs> you, you can't. I mean, I did the same thing to to go to the hyperbaric chamber. I had to get a lung thing, you know. I had to get a lung scan and everything. Get the doctor to do it. And uh, there was like zero. Like he didn't notice anything. Zero problem with my lungs. And I've been you know smoking for for a very long time, longer than than I should have been. <laughs> Um, so yeah, then they can't tell. Like they ask no. you, don't tell them. Like they actually can't tell. Like they don't know. Like if you don't tell them that you smoke, like they have no way to actually diagnose it, right? Because there's no there's no real marker going on there except that they see like the stain on your finger from 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 smoking natural tobacco. Other than that, you know, or smell it. You know, those are the only ways that they can tell that you smoke. It's not like it actually causes health problems. You know, and uh, they don't smoke before surgery, and yet I smoke like, you know, <laughs> right before every single general anesthesia I've had, not a single problem. I, I'm telling you, when I came out of my surgery, they had me hooked up to a morphine pump, which meant that I could push the button anytime I wanted morphine, right? So I said, what I really want is a cigarette. I said, well, you want to plug me from this damn machine? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah, just a... It irks me that uh, you know that, that it, it's not really a science. A, a lot of it is, is guessing. It, it's like going to the mechanic and he doesn't know what it is. He just keeps swapping parts. Oh, when I first was having this problem with Renoi, right? I used to I used to get him on my neck, right? And I would go to see this doctor uh, in the t- in the town across the way, sort of like a, a normal general practitioner. And um, uh, he would note down my symptoms, and then he would start typing on his keyboard and. Uh, one time I went and I looked around to see what it was. Have, have software where they input your symptoms, goes out, 
tallies all the possible diseases you could have. <laughs> like they actually know. They yeah, you could do that for free on WebMD. Yeah, those types of doctors are now online, and that's what your your doctor uses. I mean, you think that they're you think that they are vetted. You think that a doctor it has credentials, but he really doesn't. You have to keep in uh, mind that that fifty percent of doctors graduated in the bottom half of their graduating class. Yeah, exactly. Figure that one out. <laughs> All right, Robert. Thanks for your call. You're welcome. Bye bye. Well, we got another call here. Um, go ahead and take it. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? My name is Joe. Can Hi, Joe. Yep. You can. Okay. Well, the title of your show is, is Science, I'm Good for the World. To me, that has a connotation uh, attached to it, which I don't particularly care for. That's like saying, is eating a necessary force in today's society? Well, of course, eating is necessary, but people then take a look, uh, hear that and say, well, what about global warming? So science, of course, is good. It's the abuse of it, which is bad. And today's topic, medicine, you're actually making good. doctors look like oh. idiots, which... The, the, oh, chill, 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 bro. Back off. Hold on a second. Now, the title was taken <laughs> from the opposite side, right? The... um. The the sort of the Stephen Fry the BBC thing right they did that about the Catholic Church saying is the Catholic Church is force for good and they were saying no and their argument was that because a, some priests have molested children I mean that was their basic argument if you watch the BBC thing that was it you know so it's not an unfair title right it's not like we're trying to like be you know all weird with this we just sort of said okay well let's you know have a little bit of okay, a response fine. I'm just saying. Um... The person who listens to this sees that their initial reaction is going to be the way that I described it. Whether or not you put it up that way, that's, that's okay with me. I'm just telling you what I feel about it. Hang on, Joe. Basically, it's just an open question. It's just wondering whether or not science is a force for good in the world. And like you just said, it's the misuse of science that can be a force for bad. So the point being that science can be a force for good, but it can also be a force for bad or for evil, or whatever, if it's misused. Just keep in mind, Joe, also, I am married to a 40-year career scientist. You know, we live in the scientific academic world. You know, he writes books, he writes papers, you know, he he's on editorial boards, he does seminars, he taught for many years, he does research, you know, so it's not like, you know, it's not like we're a bunch of, you know, uh, who right, don't get all um, defensive. I'm, I'm with you guys. You guys are talking. I just said before you interrupted me that you make, you're making doctors to look like idiots, which they are. Which they are? <laughs> yeah, a lot of doctors are. A lot of doctors will take a look at the profession itself. There isn't any uh, better, quote-unquote, killing profession than the doctors other yeah, than the government. I mean, 250,000 people die per year uh, from preventable uh, actions, which the doctors themselves could have taken. So um, if you can go to a doctor and you can perform these experiments that you've done and the doctors can't tell whether or not you're smoking and they prescribe pills which don't work and they've been doing this for decades, you'd have to ask yourself, is it the doctors or is it the science or what is it? Me? Um, I love science because science, if you perform it properly, will give you the answers, even if the answers are I don't know. But science has lost its way. The thing because is, because of the abuse of it, science in and of itself is a procedure. Exactly. It's the same kind of thing is that there's nothing 
fundamentally wrong with religion with a small r, right? But but with the capital R, there kind of is. You have to admit that, that, that when you when you add a capital R to religion, it really kind of can, can become a bit of a problem. Like modern world religions, like you know, Christianity or Islam, these kind of like religions, they do actually lead to a lot of negative consequences. They don't necessarily all have bad stuff. Some of them have good stuff. There's good stuff in the Bible. There's good stuff in the Quran. There's good stuff in everything, right? Yeah. But at the capital letter, it becomes a problem. And the same thing happens with science, right? The scientific method is great. The scientific philosophy is also great. And if people adhere to it and actually follow it, it is a good thing. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with science. So many scientists today are not really doing science. They're doing religion They're with doing a capital it. R. It's, it's science with a capital S. It's the scientific establishment. It's, it's the money and it's the, it's the job of being a scientist. It's the job of being a doctor. And it leads to a lot of unethical behavior. And the same way that there's a lot of priests out there who are, you know, molesting little boys and doing all this other stuff. And that's not there's, – there's no place in the Christian Bible where it says, thou shalt be a pederast. I mean, it just – it doesn't happen, right? But people, you know, go around and they blame the Catholic Church as an institution for that kind of behavior and for letting it slide, right? For putting – pushing it under the rug and for tolerating it, right? And we're saying that, you know, you know – Sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. When you have science, what is science sweeping under the rug? What are they lying about? What kind of problems are they causing? And just because they're not touching little boys most of the time, they're actually just you know going around killing people or being incompetent or prescribing evil medications. Or I think know. the problem comes in when politics and science mix, when uh, big money and big politics uh, has the say-so over what is or is not considered to be suitable research topics. When you lose the gold. Well, that's why doctors get influenced by the farmers, uh, by the um, by the salesmen. Exactly, but yeah, they, and, and the just medical schools out, are funded and supported by pharmaceutical companies, you know. And, but and, I just want to point out before we get too far away that many, many years ago, before we came to this problem, the saying, the, the, the version of what you just said, when politics and science get together, it leads to bad things, used to be when politics and religion get together. When politics and religion ride in the same cart, used to be the old saying hundreds of years ago. And now we've come full circle, and now we're saying when politics and science. So maybe what the problem is politics, because no, it's the problem. Yeah, the problem is politics. Science in and of itself, as you've said and I've said, it's it's a neutral activity. It's the abuse of it which creates all the problems that we have. And I think that religion, spirituality, and science or scientific method went through the same process, a polarization process mm -hmm. where they lost their goal along the way. Mm -hmm. The goals are maybe the most important for humanity when getting closer to objective truth, um, getting closer to our real spirituality. And because of polarization, psychopath, greed, money, politics came into the game. And uh, right now, science is not pursuing its fundamental goal is going the, the opposite way. Which is understanding the order of the universe and our place within it and helping us to live. You can't have objective truth, otherwise politics would die. Oh, it would change fundamentally. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because people, I, I wonder when people are going to start asking the question, exactly how many politicians do we really need? Because <laughs> there seem to be a lot of them. But, you know, the thing is, is we've we've come to actually accept politics in all kinds of situations where we shouldn't have it. 
Like when you, people talk about their, their work, let's say, for instance, they work in the transit authority, right? And they talk about office politics in there or, you know, it's, it's ridiculous that you should have politics in these types of, of situations. Politics is the, is the cancer that permeates every level of, of life. Even garbage men have politics between, you know, between the garbage men. It's just – it's mind-boggling how, how infested we are with, with political – And politics is about power and control over others, domination. Hey, hey Joe, do you uh, – just on the health and medical topic – do you have any personal experience of, uh, you know, bad medicine, bad treatment, that kind of thing? I try to avoid those leeches as much as possible. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, please! I got to tell this story every time somebody mentions the leeches, right? Um, whenever you like hear, a lot of times when you hear people, doctors talking about modern medicine, they always refer back to two things: bleeding and leeches, right? There's, there's two basic things. They basically say, well, medicine, modern medicine is better today because remember back in the old days, they used to bleed people and leeches, right? And so one day I'm watching, I think it was like the Discovery Channel, and they were talking about um, uh, labs. Yeah. What? Yeah, they were talking about labs, and they, they produce an anticoagulant for like post-op, right? And uh, what they were talking about is all this stuff, and they say, and then we grind up the leeches. <laughs> <laughs> I said, wait a minute, you use leeches for anti <laughs> I was like, oh my God. And so then, right, so then I'm, I'm reading about um, some procedures, and there's, there's a disease called hemochromatosis. We've been talking about it on our forum. And basically, the prescribed solution for this is bleeding. <laughs> I just said, Jesus Yeah, you, yeah you just go out and, un- and you know, unload about you know, 500 milliliters of blood, blood every two weeks. So basically, like it's it, it blows my mind. Sorry. So whenever anybody says the leeches thing, I'm always reminded of the fact that modern medicine still uses leeches. So so go ahead, man. Sorry, I, I interrupted. Well, aren't they using leeches because leeches eat around live tissue and they only eat the dead tissue? Because this, I think, a few years ago, I came across something that um, either as an experiment or even as a regular procedure, some institution was um, was doing that. Yeah, they use maggots. Maggots are excellent for that. Maggots, maybe. Yeah. Maggots will eat necrotic tissue and not eat the living tissue. So, like, if you uh, if you put them in a wound, they will actually clean it out. The yeah, the leeches yeah. thing is actually leech bit, you leech know, because leeches uh, in their saliva they have an anticoagulant so they can stay on you and keep the blood flowing to stop it coagulating. So I think they'd have to put me under general anesthesia to put any maggots yeah. on it, any wound but, of mine. <laughs> but it's like I was wondering in that whole thing, like. How do you train a leech how to spit? You know, I, mean, you must, uh, I think yeah. they were forcibly like extracting the spit. Or yeah. Something. Anyway, Joe, you got any more any more comments, questions? No, that's it. All right. Thanks for, Thanks calling, for your call. Sorry, sorry, I got a bit defensive there. All right, you go. Uh, there's two examples: you know, leech and bleeding. Make me think that maybe the problem is more global than that, and uh, it's symptomatic, no pun intended, of uh, the loss of a lot of knowledge and ancient wisdom about uh, effective treatments. Yeah. And uh, if you look at big farmers, a lot of their molecules <coughs> actually come from uh, natural yeah. medicine, ancestral, known for centuries in tribes mm-hmm. in Amazonia or other places. Mm-hmm. Big farmers get the molecule, the natural molecule produced by nature. They have to tweak it so they can patent it. So they tweak it. Usually they add a lot of uh, chemicals that are not necessarily good for health. They patent it and make billions with it. 
then they like fill they do this one thing like um one of the reasons why I can't have oral antibiotics is because they put two products in them that are really give me problems. They put uh gluten and lactose. And I have a little bit of trouble understanding why exactly they do this into a pill <laughs> because for a while I was, you know, I get antibiotics, they didn't have any gluten and lactose and suddenly they started adding it in and I'm like, why exactly? It's the same for cigarettes actually. Most of the detrimental effects induced by cigarettes come f- not from tobacco. It comes from the texture and flavor agents, chemicals that are added to a natural substance that has been considered as beneficial and used for centuries, if not millions. When, when I was coming of age, probably you know, 1920, there was this big thing called the Truth Movement. I don't know if you guys ever saw it. Truth Movement was basically they got a whole bunch of like Abercrombie and Fitch kind of jock-looking kids, supposed to be like cool, and they would like go around and tell you interesting facts about cigarettes, right? And um, one of the things they do is they they were putting up billboards. This was like a commercial on TV. They were putting up billboards with a list of all the chemicals inside of cigarettes, and um, none of them like there was things like formaldehyde and arsenic and all these different things in different quantities. And I said, yeah, but that doesn't come in the plant. That's added in by the tobacco company. Why? Why do they need to? And then um, there's this American Spirit came out, and they were like, we don't have any additives, right? But the Surgeon General made them put on the front of their packs, the lack of additive chemicals does not mean a safer cigarette. And I said, well, hold on a second. If I have a glass full of water and it has a drop of arsenic in it, and then I have another glass full of water and it has two drops of arsenic in it, which glass is worse? Right, the one with two drops of arsenic is worse than the one with one drop of arsenic. The the one with one drop is safer. If I have to drink one of the glasses, I'm going to pick the one with less poison than the one with more poison. And therefore, logically speaking, it must be safer to have less poison than it is to have more poison. So I said, well, that's illogical to say that it doesn't make for a safer cigarette because when you take out the arsenic from the cigarette, suddenly it's not as poisonous. But they're not legally allowed to say that. And I said, well, hold on a second. Because that's not the truth. Yeah, talking about that, in the, <clears throat> when you talk about arsenic, I thought about microdoses and homeopathy. And, uh, yeah. It reminds me of two other weaknesses of uh, the modern health system today. Is that The first one is, the, at least in France, and uh, that's the total denial of any other kind of therapy, mm. uh, except of uh, uh, allopathy. Um, it can be massage or tai chi or meditation or... Um, acupuncture, all that is considered as uh, charlatanism. Mm. Another weakness as well is the causes. I think doctors are very good in some fields, in their own fields, but there is a holistic problem and uh, that's a weakness. They're very good at defining a diagnosis, like a mechanics, you know, you have this kind of failure, this part is not working and and they're good at the mechanical intervention, Mm. hiding the problem. But what thing that is missing is the identification of the fundamental root of the disease, either nutritional, environment, environmental, or emotional. There's no connection and no focus, no treatment of the fundamental cause of the disease. So you only hide, you patch, but it will come back because the root is still here. I got another story that that, that inspired, right? So I, I'm going to this hyperbaric chamber and the doctor tells me, you have to do four two-hour sessions a week or else it won't work. And um, so I said, okay, one week I couldn't. So I went I went for my – I went double sessions actually uh, for once. And then the next week I did my four sessions. And I had to 
uh, it was two centimeters of growth. It's, it's quite impressive, actually, with hyperbaric chamber. Two centimeters of growth from the wound. I was like, wow, that's, that's really good. And then the next week, I could only come to two sessions because of uh, of some various different circumstances, which we won't go into. Anyway, so I go in, and then at the end of each week, they measure the wounds, right? And so I go in, and I get the wounds measured. And I only went for two sessions, but I had one centimeter, 1.5 centimeters of growth, right? I only went to two sessions. She said, she said, oh, yes, but you only went to two sessions. It's a placebo effect. <laughs> and I said, well... <laughs> A placebo effect has the word effect in it. <laughs> you know, I mean, if it works, I'm not really going to complain here. It was 1.5 centimeters of placebo. You know, and I and, and, and then afterward, you know, I said to the nurse, I said, you know, numbers don't lie. 1.5 centimeters is, is 1.5 centimeters, you know. And the week when I didn't go at all, I actually I had missed it one entire week. I'd only grew 0.5 centimeters for the entire week. And placebo effect is a, is a reality. But yes, it is. Actually, when you look at uh, some uh, studies made by pharmaceutical uh, companies, you're surprised at the difference between a placebo group the, yeah. and the group that took the mm-hmm. new uh, molecule. And you're wondering about the effectiveness of the drug. Sometimes the difference is not uh, so high. But it also shows that the emotional dimension, the mind, yeah. plays a fundamental role in the in the body. But doctors and say placebo ignored. effect as a disqualifier for yeah. something. And, and but the placebo effect is actually a real effect and is quite good, <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, not only that, but I mean, when they see that there is a placebo effect, why aren't they focusing on that as a modality of healing? You know, looking at what the mind can do. Some do. There is the, the Harvard Medical School has a website now. I can't remember the name of it, but they do. They have a research center that is researching the placebo effect. There and, is this example um, in the book written by this neurosurgeon who uh, describes a. Uh, cancer survivals and cancer survival. And uh, he described the case of this guy who was a terminal cancer. And um, they gave him a drug. Um, and uh, finally, they gave it. I don't remember exactly the story, the, all the details, but basically, they end up giving him a placebo because the drug is not available anymore. It was a brand new drug, still going through clinical trials. It was not available. But the doctor promised to the patient, but he couldn't deliver, so he gave a fake one. And the guy who is in terminal stage is about to die, has maybe two weeks left. He's getting better and better and better. And, uh, and then they stop the placebo, and it gets worse. And then we start the placebo, it gets better. And uh, yeah, I think uh, it's totally underexplored, not explored enough, the influence of the mind, influence of the emotions, like Louise A or... This bobo I've been uh, describing and uh, inquiring a bit, it's a fundamental factor too. It, uh, I think if someone has a healthy emotional <laughs> mind life and a healthy uh, nutritional life, uh, he would be uh, safe and uh, healthy. Yeah. Well, I'm going to tell my little story now because... Everybody's gotten to tell their stories, so I want to tell my story. Um, And it's basically about my experience with the medical profession in its various forms. And let let me start by saying, when I was in college, I studied biology and anatomy and physiology, and I was going to go into the sciences, but then I ended up dropping out after three years. Um... But I wasn't, you know, exactly stupid, and I and I did get some fundamental uh, basics of of the 
biological sciences and the health sciences under my belt. And then I went to nursing school. And I worked for a doctor for a while and learned quite a bit there. So it's not like, you know, I'm, I'm a complete newbie when you start talking about medical topics. You know, I, I knew a lot of things. I experienced a lot of things. Uh, I was, you know, there with the doctor I worked for uh, when he performed surgeries. I, uh, you know, took medical histories, uh, administered treatment, you know, with him. So I wasn't completely uh, blind or ignorant about things. But um, the first thing is, is that I grew up uh, two houses away from a little boy whose mother took thalidomide while she was pregnant for morning sickness. And anybody who doesn't know about thalidomide... uh, look it up on the internet because it was a drug that was approved and prescribed to pregnant women, pregnant women. And it was only when these pregnant women, and of course it was being prescribed for morning sickness, which occurs in the early stages of pregnancy, which is when certain structures in the, in the forming fetal body uh, begin to differentiate. And it was only uh, after multiple, many, 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 I mean, really just horribly, horribly high numbers of infants, of mothers who were taking this drug, were born without arms and with flipper feet and other horrible uh, abnormalities that they realized that they were basically performing experiments on live people. Um, So it was stopped immediately and it was a big scandal. You can look it up on, on the Internet and find out about it. But anyway, um, I grew up two doors away from this little boy. He was three years younger than I was, and his mother came over and asked my grandmother if I could come down and play with him because he didn't have anybody to play with. And we kind of grew up together, and he was my best friend. And I never forgot that this happened to him because a doctor prescribed a drug for his mother because, of course, I learned that during the course of the years. Then later on, my grandfather had uh, some uh, basically, you know, getting older problems, atherosclerosis and so forth, and they put him on a uh, course of treatment. This was the Veterans Administration, and he ended up dying within about four years after they began the treatment. About 10 years later, I was watching television. I watched a special on 2020 where they were exposing the fact that this particular course of treatment that my grandfather had been on had been discovered to have uh, killed many, many people because it was exactly the wrong thing to do for the condition. And they had had so many deaths from giving this course of treatment to people who were suffering from high blood pressure and just you know basically minor problems they were killing them so that was kind of like strike number 2 it was very upsetting to say the least to realize that the pills that i had you know shaken out into my hand and put on a on a saucer beside his plate you know take your medicine grandpa that i'd helped to kill my grandfather um when i was pregnant with my first child, I went in for a prenatal check and the doctor said, well, something doesn't feel right. So he sent me down 
This was back in the early days of doing different kinds of scans, so you didn't have them easily available everywhere. So he sent me 20 miles down the road to a hospital that had a uh, a scanning machine, and they did a scan, and I brought it back. He looked at it, and he says, oh, you have cancer. You know, we have to do a hysterectomy. You know, you have to pay the money in advance. Uh, show up in the morning with a check, and we'll put you in the hospital, get this taken care of right away. And... I was very upset, to say the least, because you go from thinking you're going to have a baby to being told that you're going to have a hysterectomy. So it's a little bit dis- disconcerting, to say the very least, especially when you're 25 years old. I called a friend of mine to tell her, you know, what was going on, you know, because I was very upset. You know, you call a friend to just talk to him. Well, it just so happened that this friend of mine was the personal secretary for the head of the nuclear medicine department at the University of South Florida Teaching Hospital. And she says, wait a minute. She says, that doesn't sound right. Why don't you let me talk to her boss? His name was Larry at the time. And she says, why don't you let me talk to Larry and I'll get back to you. So a little while later, she calls me back and she says, he does, he agrees that it doesn't sound right either. He would like to have, look at you. So I drove all the way over there and he took his lunch hour to do the scans uh, himself. And he said, I don't think it's cancer, he says, but it's, uh, you know, the, the the history is a little strange. You know, I'd like you to go down to, you know, Tampa General and see uh, an, one of his colleagues who was uh, doing rounds there at the time. So I get in the car, I drive down to Tampa General. The guy apparently was expecting me, so they took me right in. So he had, uh, you know, like about 10 of his best students, and they were all standing around. So they sat me down, and they asked me questions, blah, blah, blah. And then they uh, examined me, and and if you've never had a a gynecological exam with 10 doctors in the room, you've, you know, missed out on one of the most interesting things in life. Uh, But there it was, and and it was going, you know, so it was a serious situation. So one of them said, finally, after they talked to each other over me uh, for a little while, they said, well, what if she's pregnant? And they looked at each other like, God, what a concept. And they said, well, there's only one way to find out. And at this point in time, there was the only person in town who had a sonogram that showed moving pictures. Remember, this time, sonograms were basically stills. The only one who had one that showed moving pictures was a gynecologist over by another hospital, St. Joseph's. So I had to drive over there because I called him up. I drove over there, and he whips out his handy-dandy super device and... Uh, does the sonogram, and lo and behold, I was, in fact, pregnant. You could see a baby with the heart beating. But there was also a very large tumor in front of the uterus. So the whole story about this, the, the, the whole point of this story is that one out of something like 12 or 13 doctors got it right. Yeah, it made me think about uh, one interesting statistics going, uh, going confirming your your take on it. At least in France, um, there you have life expectancy statistics according to social professional categories, and doctors have a, on average a life expectancy that is lower than the national population in general. So you start wondering to what extent would I give my credit? Will I believe someone who's not able to take care of his own health and put my own my health in his hands? 
Yeah, I, I was I was diagnosed by a doctor. He said I was morbidly obese. And this is coming from a doctor who obviously had liver disease, ascites, and a swollen belly that looked like it was about to burst. Yeah, that was really funny. I mean, he was really... Uh, and and then and then I saw him. I went back to that same clinic. I saw him like. Uh, well, you went years. on the paleo diet and lost sixty kilos lost and 60 like nothing flat. And like nothing flat. I came back and I saw him, and he had swelled even more. And now he was morbidly obese with the with with, with liver disease and liver spots. And, and you and you were like, skinny mini. And I was I was now smaller than him. <laughs> and I just thought it was it was rich. It was funny. You know, I, know. I, I get a little bit of Schadenfreude. <laughs> You know, we've been talking here about, um, we've been talking trash about the medical industry and doctors and all sorts of things, but um, it has to be said that we would probably be in a much worse condition if we didn't have modern medicine. Well, that's the line that they sell you. Yeah, well, well let I me think, tell well, you I my think positive would be, story. Put it, this, put it this way, if we were eating and living in exactly the same way we are today and did not have modern medicine, people will be worse off. Yeah, let me tell you the That's positive things. The positive things is is I believe that the judicious use of antibiotics has saved many, many lives. Absolutely. I believe the childbirth uh, attended by physicians has saved many, many lives because, you know, I, I got into genealogy a few years ago and I was doing all of these genealogy charts and blah, blah, blah. And it was just absolutely astonishing the numbers of women who died in childbirth that you could map on a genealogical tree and the husbands that would marry two or three wives because they had, you know, two or three wives died one after the other in childbirth. And in fact, uh, two of my, I have five children and two of my deliveries, my children would have died if I had not been in a hospital with competent medical care. Um, one of one of them is sitting right here beside me. Uh, he was he was born with his uh, with the cord wrapped around his throat, and he was strangling like a furion. He oh. was strangling as he was being delivered, and my youngest child had to be born by an emergency cesarean in the middle of the night because she was trying to deliver sideways. Her arm came out, and the doctor said, "Oops, this isn't going to work." You know, so to hold it while we get while we get you prepped, and so for forty five minutes, you know, I held it. <laughs> and, hold it. <laughs> yeah, hold try it. try that when your body is screaming, deliver, deliver, deliver. Well, that's the thing is, the the bad medicine rides in on the benefits of the good medicine. You know, and there, well, there are there are many many fine doctors, and I have known some fine doctors, and I've known some very intuitive, caring doctors. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, but I would say that the percentage rate is about, you know, 4 to 6% of all the doctors I've ever encountered or known uh, are the really good ones, and the other 90, uh, 96 to 90, 94 to 96% are really just, they're just mechanics. They're, they're okay, but there's been there's been some major progress, as you mentioned, of obstetrics in antibiotics, infectious disease, and uh, mechanics surgery. But today, in 2013, it's not black and white. But today, in 2013, if you compare, if you check the efficiency ratio, if you look at the amount that is invested every year in research, in medicine, health in general, and the end results. I'm not sure that over the last decades, modern medicine has been increasing its efficiency. Yeah, we got a call here, so we're going to go ahead and take Hello? it. Hello? Hi, what's your name? Where are you calling from? 
Hi, it's Tiff from Ohio. Tiff? Yeah. Tiff? Can you hear me? Yeah. Yep. Welcome to the show. What's your question? Oh, thanks. Well, it's not really a question. It's more like a comment, but you kind of switched over to more positive stories, but I wanted to know if you had time to talk about uh, psychiatry and how big of a fraud that is. It's hardly even science at all. That's going to have its own show, psychiatry. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I'm a a psychiatric nurse, and it's just mind-boggling just how uh, ridiculous it is. It's just guesswork. Such a fraud. Tiff, what's your uh, what's your take on psychology? Have you any experience or with it? Or, or psychiatry? Yeah, I'm a psychiatric nurse, and I've been doing that for some years. And I worked in psych the psychiatric field in another capacity for some years. And it's just prescribing one med after another, changing the med, prescribing another med. Uh, it's just ridiculous, and no one ever gets better. But what, where did you say, you said you'd worked in the field for a long time? Yes, I'm a psychiatric nurse. Okay. Mm. So you must have seen a few things then in terms of bad Yeah, I've seen, I've seen a lot of things. Some very incompetent doctors. Uh, I've seen uh, shock treatments, which was uh, weirdly fascinating but also quite sad. So it's just a big joke to me. I don't know how else to describe it. Well, watch the space because we're going to talk about psychiatry and psychology. Give it its own show, and then you know you can come on and talk to us about it. Okay, cool. All right, Tip, your call. Thanks. Enjoy the show. <laughs> All right. All right. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's kind of criminal because you know what? Everyone like is trying to fix people's minds, right? And no one ever asks the question: Why are people going so nuts? You know, why are there so many manic depressives that need, like, you know, all of these antidepressants, right? And, and maybe it's because the world really does actually kind of suck a lot of the time, especially for a lot of the people. Well, I think one of the biggest problems is coming back to to the issue of medical science and diet. Uh, doctors just simply don't want to go there. Uh, we, we, knew a pe- we knew a person whose father was uh, dying. <clears throat> He was quite ill. He was diabetic, and he had some heart conditions and so on and so forth, and he had to have his potatoes and his bread and his sweets and everything and you know, uh, adjust his insulin so that he could uh, eat it. And one day this friend of ours uh, ran into his doctor on the street and said uh, or asked him, he said, do you think you know maybe changing his diet would help him? And the doctor just guffawed and said, you know, nonsense, stuff and nonsense, man. Diet doesn't have anything to do with your health. Mm. This was a doctor who said this. I mean, can you believe that abysmal ignorance? It's criminal. It's well, criminal. It's negligence. It's negligence. I mean, there's, there has to be a point at which the, 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 the incompetence of a person, a person who is supposed to know certain things, when that information is available to lay people, right, they have an obligation as a professional to know about it, and not knowing about it is... Incompetence. It is it is criminal incompetence. It is malpractice. Well, compare that doctor who says stuff and nonsense. You know, diet has nothing to do with your health. To this doctor or this nutritionist you encountered at the hospital who said, "Oh, you have to drink this milk with these vitamins and have this cheese, you know, to to get these B vitamins or whatever it was they wanted you to have." 
I mean, at least they had the concept that something you could take into your body could improve your levels of a certain element in your blood. Yeah, I mean, it was a nice attempt and all, but... It reminds me of a story. I met a nutritionist, actually, uh, during my, my stay in hospital. And she asked me what I was eating. I told her about this um, paleo diet. And this nutritionist was uh, pretty lucid. And actually, the saying goes like, uh, one, one of the first proof of competency is to know the limit of your own competency. And uh, so I described my diet, and she said, you know, over 30 or 40 years of professional experience, I've read everything about nutrition and its contrary. And now, frankly, I don't know. So people eat whatever they want, and I don't know what is good, I don't know what is bad. She was lucid, and at the same time, she was putting a finger on something that is uh, quite true. It, the waters have been so muddied, they're so... Intentionally so. In some incompatible cases. information, and black and white, right. and going this way and that way, that for a layperson, it's very difficult to separate the truth from the lies and to follow the right direction. Well, there's one really simple way to think about it. Since... Qui bono? Well, not just qui bono, but since the uh, beginning of the campaign to increase the consumption of grains, vegetables, um, fruits, and so forth, and the reduction of the consumption of meats and fats and so forth... The rates of cancer and heart disease have gone through the roof in tandem with that activity. Isn't the, the increase in diabetes was like 800%? The increase in diabetes also. So you've got three of the major plagues of our civilization, cancer, heart disease, and diabetes, that went sky high exactly in concert with the change in diet. With the change in diet that was instituted, though, they were beginning back after the Second World War, yeah, I think. Or, yeah, even before it. But, I mean, there's, a, there's an article I have here um, about wheat, and it's um, that wheat contains not one, but 20, 23,000 potentially harmful proteins. So, I mean, just on the idea of your diet not being related to your psychological state, I mean, when you're consuming toxins, and possibly, you know, brain toxins as, as well uh, that can cause all sorts of physical ailments and these modern diseases like uh, like you just mentioned. Obviously, you're not going to be in a very good psychological state if you've got diabetes or if you've got heart disease or if you've got cancer. And if that's directly linked, I mean, there's, there, there's, a, there's an indirect link clearly there, if not a direct link between diet and psychological state, you know. But that's isn't, a, isn't there a certain, like, what, what is it about the cells in the gut? That are like like neurons or something. Yeah, this, yeah, you've got a bunch of neurons in your gut that you know control your mood. Well, there's another thing. You know, we've spent a lot of time with our research team reading the scientific papers and reading papers on diet, various diet forms, scientific studies, and so on and so forth. And what we have found repeatedly is when they do these so-called scientific double-blind studies that they insist upon before anything gets accepted, they make such egregious. I mean, just horrible decisions about how to conduct these tests that there is absolutely no way you can rely on their results as any kind of scientific uh, uh, standard. Uh, dietary, for example, like they did a, a, a test on um, on whether or not vitamin C helps with cancer. 
Oh what? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the caller. We got a caller. Hi, caller. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Hi, my name is Paul. I'm calling from New Jersey. Paul. Hi. Hi. Yeah, I just want to uh, first of all thank you for the shows. Uh, I listen every week. It's great. And uh, just want to make a comment regarding uh, pharmaceutical industry. I have worked there for more than nine years. And uh, I observed all the things that you guys were telling. Uh, one thing, the way it works is in the industry, it's all localized. Like uh, the sales guy doesn't know what happens in the clinical side. Clinical side doesn't know what happens in IT. And it's all localized. Because of that, really nobody knows what other guy is doing. For example, I worked in IT. IT guys goes and gets the data what the rep telling to the doctor and the doctor how many prescriptions he makes. Sales mm-hmm. guy takes that data, goes to the doctor saying that, okay, you're writing less. I'm taking this many times to lunch and all that. If a lot of places, even doctors doesn't engage the rep- representative. So they go back to the uh, the front desk woman, and they take them to the lunch. So they use quite a lot of pressure tactics by feeding them or giving some gifts so that uh, the doctor writes certain prescriptions per month. Right. Now, right. the same thing... I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say, like, at what point is that not Judas behavior? I mean, if if you're 30 pieces of silver for, like, killing people... Or hurting people is is as a lunch and a couple of gifts, then you're an evil person. Like that doctor who, who writes more of those bad prescriptions and like kills somebody, or like the person who who prescribed the diethylamide or whatever it was to those pregnant women. If if he like did that because some salesman took him to lunch, I mean, that's like that's ninth ring of hell kind of evil. Well, you know, that's kind of being debated though. I mean, the idea that these little gifts that uh, pharmaceutical companies give to doctors and stuff as well that actually influences them is 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 debatable, but what's not debated is the fact that pharmaceutical companies pretty much produce um, most of the articles. They do their own research, their own medical research, and they send them to journals and journals, medical journals that doctors read and take as um, you know as as gospel. Basically, um, those medical journals they get most of their advertising money from the same pharmaceutical companies. So the journals that are producing information are not only producing the information from the pharmaceutical companies that are producing the drugs, but they're also getting uh, money uh, from the pharmaceutical we, companies for their their magazines and for producing and for making their money and making and profits. And then we come so back to Qui Bono, you know. Yeah, but one thing you're saying that they they have they put pressure on them to write a certain number of prescriptions of a particular drug every month. Is that correct? Right, because because these people give gifts, feeds, and give tickets to the uh, pharmaceutical uh, conferences and all that stuff. So they are actually somewhat obligated. I have personally uh, seen the reps forcing the doctor, forcing me literally. He's saying, oh, you, you only wrote two prescriptions in this month. What's really going on? But one fortunate thing is not too many doctors are engaging the reps. That's a reason why pharmaceutical industries pretty much reduces their reps. Instead, they went directly into 
uh, television advertisements, which is a big cash cow to them. Advertising so that the patient will come in and demand their new drug. Yep. Yes. After that, the pharmaceutical drug sales gone up uh, very exponentially. That's that's as crazy as policemen being required to meet quotas, you know, for speeders. You know, you've got to catch fifty speeders this week, or 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 you're not you're not producing. And yeah, there are uh, some uh, documented case that uh, <clears throat> illustrate what Paul mentioned. Usually, doctors will hide the bonus given by the big farmers as scientific conferences. But when you dig a bit, you see that this, the scientific conference has, is nothing scientific. It's organized in the Bahamas in a five-star hotel for one week and a few right. non-scientific conferences. So you can hide what is basically corruption. And another point you mentioned, and that is a very true thing, is a total disconnection between R&D, the engineering of the molecule, what is really into the molecule, what it really does, and what the doctor knows, because basically the FDA or now equivalent uh, agencies in other countries will provide an official notice listing the pathology, the content, the side effects, and uh, positive effects, and nothing else, nothing about the history, and that comes from the big, uh, the big pharma, this notice. And 99% of the doctors, they don't go further than that. They only have this notice, that is written by the one who make profit from it. So in conclusion, we can say from what you say, Paul, that doctors are A, ignorant, ignorant of the fundamentals of the drug they put in their patient's body, and B, they are corrupted, corrupted because their drug choice is not led by knowledge or the objective of treating the patient, but by profit and greed. Yes, uh, there is one more thing is because doctors are pretty much dependent on the data that is the not word data, basically on the papers, whatever the rep gives. But that data comes from the half a billion dollar clinical trials that contains 100 different steps. Even these clinical trials is based on the what they do it on the patients. Now, in the last decade, a lot of these tests are moved to countries like India and other third world countries. Of course, India is not third world, but other countries where doctors can be managed extremely easily. So the, this whole clinical trials over which they have hundreds of statisticians which will be running all this data in so many functions, mathematical functions, to come up with a conclusion they wanted, which they are supposed to send it to FDA, and FDA is supposed to approve it before these people can build this all pamphlets and give it to the doctor. So this many people are invested into the whole process. They can literally do anything they want it. Since there is no policing, it's all um, because even in the FDA, it's basically that's why these pharmaceutical companies hire a lot of FDA people in their uh, legal services so that they can be act as a consultants or uh, whatever it is. So this everybody is basically quoting somebody else and everything is localized to their own world. This is completely pathological. Yeah, the pharmaceutical companies are the equivalent of the pedophiles in the Catholic Church, only they are the pedophiles of, of medical science. 
Right. One day, yes. So that kind of answers our question. Is science a force for good in this world? Is the Catholic Church a force for good? Well, science or the Catholic Church, either one, could be very very powerful forces for good in the world in their respective ways. But, you know, because they've got this corruption and they avert their eyes from it, or they don't, as Paul just said, they don't police the uh, the activities. They well, what's worse is they they police it in the opposite direction. They suppress dissent within their ranks. Yeah, and that's, they, that's the kind machine of... has to keep going. You know, the spice must flow. Well, I mean, and it's like in every other profession in the world nowadays, you get creative people who get attacked because there is good research. It just doesn't get published or doesn't get promoted because it's very close to the truth. At... So you have one you have one side of people, really creative people, who get attacked. Then you have these doctors who have to obey because they have to feed a family. And then you have a big majority of doctors who have lost curiosity. And what makes science good is curiosity. Look at this doctor in the UK. What's his name? Wakefield, the one that came, uh, that did the studies that shows that there is a definite connection between uh, the mercury in, in uh, vaccinations and autism. And they just, they, 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 Put him through such a horrible campaign of smearing and defamation and and just tearing him down. And then, about six months later, another study came out and said the same thing. He was vindicated, but all anybody remembers is that he was, you know, stripped of his license or whatever, whatever mm-hmm. evil things they did to him. The Inquisition. Yeah, that he they they put him through the Inquisition because he came out with a really powerful study that said that there was a definite connection between vaccine and autism. It's well, Galileo it, all over again. You it know, gets really sinister though when you talk about the FDA. That's the Food and Drug Administration. Uh, that's a government body, and they're in bed with big pharma, and that's food and drug. I.e., they are promoting types of food that people should eat. I.e., the my plate kind of a food pyramid which is heavily weighted towards grains, and that's producing all of these illnesses. And then they're following that up by by kind of uh, rubber, rubber stamping the big pharma to yeah. provide drugs for this. So, I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just a recipe for it's perpetuation a, of illness. It's a pathological condition in medical science. That's, that's what it is. It's a medical science is infected with cancer. Well, yeah, but like as as Chu was like doing the research before, that uh, a lot of the the pharma companies are also involved in the agriculture uh, companies as well. Like the, it's the same board of directors on both companies or something like that. Yeah, we mentioned that on the on the show about GMOs. I mean, it's all the same. You can't. They're having people uh, not only get sicker and sicker, but also gladly pay for both their poison in the food and the drugs. I mean, and the company that's making both of them is owned. And that's the same company that's paying for the re- research that's saying it's beneficial. And also supporting the medical schools. And supporting yeah, the medical and the journals. And giving, giving the uh, scholarships to people who want to become doctors. Mm-hmm. I'm making mean, so, sure that they pass their tests, you know. Uh, so right. the money. And then we go back to this doctor, this Wakefield guy, and the way he was treated. And that's the same kind of thing that happened with Galileo. And that's usually a big sort of thing that people list and they say, this is why we... We resisted church. This is why we wanted secularism. This is why we wanted secular governments. This is all the stuff. And then everyone says, "Yeah, remember Galileo," <laughs> you know. And and here we Giordano are, Giordano Bruno, you know, Giordano Bruno or something like that. Even yeah, though. Bruno's the one they burned at the stake. Yeah, but 
It was sort of, he was he was a little bit insane to be quite honest. I read his book. <laughs> he was crazy. Yeah, actually, I just want to mention one more point uh, about this localization. Um, one day, actually, I read one article in a newspaper saying that one of the drug my company produced has fifty thousand cases. I was scratching my head at that time because there is some. A woman from the legal department is asking me about how many drugs is sold in what region by what uh, we we are not supposed to store by doctor, but the pharmaceutical company goes around by saying that this zip code and uh, they have something called territory based on that they will find out uh, which product group because they are not supposed to store even by product they have to sub- store it by product group but they come around and they group it in such a way that they can easily figure it out so she was working with me for a couple of months to figure out to where the prescription happened and all that stuff but i didn't never realize that this is the same data i'm providing is there uh, collecting because there are 50000 cases against uh that specific drug look at it. the company contains what 20000 30000 40000 people across the people are working together because they are bounded by the signatures they make in specific pro- specific projects they are work on so they are not legally supposed to tell each other now i'm i whatever the data i'm giving what for they are using i don't know they call it's called corporate uh, uh what is corporate uh, you know uh, we can constitution like uh, they have their own uh, constitution type of things what one can do what cannot do is so localized that literally it's mind blowing and also anybody can do anything with it yeah completely sewn up you know and that's the that's the take home message you know anyway thanks for your call rao thank you bye Right, yeah, we're going to wrap it up there for this week. I think we've done this you one. You heard it straight from the horse's mouth, somebody who works for Big Pharma. Yeah. Telling you exactly how it is. So, I rest my case. All right, thanks to all our listeners and our callers and we will be back next Sunday at a, about the same time or probably exactly the same time. So, hopefully we'll see you then. <laughs>